Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, where we're going to finish up the last few parables in this text. Beginning in verse 44, the Holy Scriptures read, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea, gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. You pray with me and for me as we dig into this text this morning. Father, we ask that Christ would be the treasure of our hearts, that we would not cling to the foolish idols of this world created things when we have the almighty, all-powerful, righteous, and holy, and perfect creator before us. So, Father, we just ask that through the preaching of the word today that I would not add confusion to anyone's thoughts, but clarity as revealed in your word. Lord, help us to take this text for what it says, to not interpret it away, to apply it to somebody else, but apply it to ourselves Help us to judge righteous judgment. Help us to pull the logs out of our own eye that we might see clearly to pull the specks out of each other's. May we do this by grace and love through your power. Father, I pray for the one here today, Lord, who's still living for this world, who is maybe the third soil, who believes they have faith, but in reality they're amongst the thorns and the thistles and it's choking out the word so that it does not take root in their life and produce fruit. May today, Lord, be the day of salvation for them. Help them to jettison their religiosity. Help them to leave their idolatry behind and realize everything that we have in this world is sand in our hands that is slipping away. This world is but a shadow of the world to come. So, Father, I ask that by your power, I would be able to stand here between two worlds this morning and point people to the glorious unseen realities which are coming so very soon. Help us not to be foolish. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 4th, 1972, CBS launched their new American TV game show where contestants would compete in that game show by trying to guess the value of items that were brought out before them. They would each get their own set of items, and they'd have to tally it up in their minds and figure out what they thought it was worth. And if you guessed that correctly, you could win boatloads or cash or even a dream boat that you had always dreamed of. And after having aired over 9,000 episodes since its launch, this show, which you probably have figured out is The Price is Right, has collected quite a few people who lost miserably simply because they couldn't figure out an item's value. 
They were terrible. They, were, they would either overvalue it and guess way above or guess way below, and it would cost them bigly, big time. For example, yeah, we'll go with bigly, why not? For example, when the show brought out an iPhone 6 that included a calling plan to be bid on, for some bizarro reason, they thought, oh, an iPhone 6 with a calling plan and, you know, messaging and stuff, this must be worth, the contestant guessed, $7,500. Uh, they were only a few thousand dollars off, $7,000 off actually about, uh, because it was only worth a few hundred dollars. And so because this person didn't know the value of that item, they obviously didn't win and they lost out badly. We'll go the other way. Another time, the show brought out a nice quilted hammock, and it was a nice hammock, don't get me wrong. It came up from the ground. It had some nice wood holding it together. And this contestant thought the hammock was worth not $70, $700, no, 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 $7,000 is what they guessed on a hammock. And I don't know if they thought it was a sleep number hammock, but it wasn't, and it was worth about $800. And so because they didn't know the value of this item, they lost out in a big way. Now, those are some examples of people overbidding on the prices, right? But there's people who underbid too, and it makes them lose. For example, one man's showcase that he bid on, get this, it was a world trip going all around from China to Europe to, I mean, everywhere, staying at the finest hotels, all expenses paid, and it was a long trip. This wasn't like a three-day trip, you know, just going to two places. This was a dream vacation with full of excursions and fine dining, and so even after the crowd oohed and awed when they saw the pictures of the luxurious hotels, the food he'd be eating, the places he'd be staying, this man bid $4,600. And it was actually worth $26,000. And so he obviously lost out badly because of it. The point here we're trying to make is when it comes to determining the value of things, we need to realize something extremely important, and it's this. Being a good spiritual Price is Right contestant is the most important thing you will do this side of eternity. It's the most important. And if you get that bid wrong, it's going to cost you in the most serious of ways. And so we must get this right. We have to understand the value of eternal things. What am I talking about? I'm talking about what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 13. Right? We're looking at four parables this morning. Maybe you think we're brave to try to tackle all these, but I think it'll work. But here's the parables. The parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the dragnet, and I think the last one's a parable, the parable of the new and old treasures. Right? He compares it. He says, it's like this. So yeah, it qualifies. We'll call it a parable. So in these parables, Jesus is telling us something. He's trying to tell us that there is something that is so valuable that when it comes to bidding on what we think the worth of all other things are, it pales in comparison. It's not even close. He's saying that this item he's speaking of is the most valuable thing on the planet, and if we properly bid on it, it's ours. That's his point. All right, so what is he talking about? What is it, and how do we get it? Well, it is, if you read the text, it says right in there, the kingdom of heaven. That's the value. That's the most valuable thing there is that we are after, the kingdom of heaven, which obviously includes the king of the kingdom of heaven, which is Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but we get this kingdom, how? By recognizing three things. And here they are. <clears throat> I got a frog in my throat. Okay, here we go. Here's the three things. 
We must recognize the kingdom's worth, its cost, and its calling. So let me ask you a question. If I said to you, hey, is this worth $500 to you? What would you say? What is it? Right? Depends on what it is. If it's a piece of paper, blank piece of paper, what would you say? No, not worth $500. What if it's a piece of paper with an autograph of it on it of Babe Ruth? Would you pay $500 for that? What if it's a piece of paper with winning lotto ticket numbers on it? Maybe you don't gamble, I don't, whatever. But, or maybe if it's a piece of paper that has like a digital code to unlock 3,000 Bitcoin. That's worth like millions and millions of dollars, by the way. Would you pay $500 for that? What if you didn't have $500 to give me right then and there? You didn't even have it in your bank. I would venture to say that within a few hours, you would be back somehow with $500 to get that piece of paper from me. Of course you would. Of course you would. And this is the kind of illustration Jesus is telling us here. He's using parables to explain to us that the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything in this world. It pale, it's a shadow in comparison. He's telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure in a field, or he's telling us it's like a pearl of great price, that when a person finds it, they say, you know what? I will pay whatever the cost is for that because that is the most valuable thing. I don't, my car, I'll trade that in, absolutely. Absolutely do that. I'll trade in my career. I'll trade whatever I need to get this because it is the most valuable thing that there is. And Jesus is making this point by way of parables. What are parables? Well, parables are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly illustration pointing us to spiritual realities, trying to get us to see, by way of an earthly illustration, the things of the unseen world. And these two parables that he's giving us here are chock full of meaning about that unseen world. And they are teaching us the same thing he taught us back in Matthew chapter 6, where he said what? Here's what he said. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all of God's righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Not your own righteousness. Not the kingdom of this world. Seek that. That is the eternal thing that you need to be after. Okay, so with this first parable, the parable of the hidden treasure, if you read this at first glance, what do you, what do you think? Okay, is Jesus like advocating for some shady big business practices here? You know what I mean? Like this guy, he's going along somebody else's field. He, I don't know why he's digging in somebody's field. That seems already shady as is. But he's digging in somebody else's field. He finds this treasure. He buries it back. He goes out and he doesn't tell the owner. And then he, you know, gets all the money he can, sells everything he has, comes back and buys the field to gain that treasure. Okay, well, first off, that's not Jesus' point. We're not going to go into the details, but in the culture, this would not have... In our culture, we're like, wow, that's, that's dishonest. In their culture, the way the laws and set up everything, it wouldn't, nobody would have blinked twice at all of it. They would just been like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But the way this worked back in Jesus' days, maybe you're wondering, why is there treasure in the ground? What is going on here? Well, they didn't have a first national bank. Okay, so what did you do when <clears throat> invaders came or you needed to store something long-term? Well, you put it in the ground. You mark X marks the spot. Maybe you don't want to put an X on it because everybody knows that. But... The point is, you put it in the ground, you keep it there, and so, especially when invaders would come into your nation, you would leave it there, you would run and hide, you would leave, and when they left, after they were done looting and pillaging, you'd come back, dig up your treasure, and it was there for you. And so, that would be there for them, unless, of course, they didn't survive that invasion, and then somebody else would come along, get the land, and maybe they were tilling or whatever, and all of a sudden, boom, they hit a box, pull it up, and wow, look at this, there's some treasure in here, wonderful. 
So that's the illustration Jesus is giving here. The point is, don't get all super focused <clears throat> on what sounds like a shady business practice. That's not what he's getting at, okay? He's simply telling us the kingdom of heaven is of such great value that when a person discovers it, okay, they will give anything and everything in order to acquire it. <clears throat> now, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, what, he has been, what has he been doing so far? He's been offering the Jewish people the kingdom. And so far, they've been rejecting it over and over and over in spite of all of the miracles that Jesus is doing that shows that he is actually the king of this kingdom that they were longing for. But they rejected it. Why? Because it didn't show up in the form that they wanted. God wasn't doing things the way they thought he should, and so they dismissed it outright. What did they want? They expected a conquering king not a suffering savior. They expected justice and wrath, right? They had these Roman oppressors. They wanted them gone. They were God's chosen people. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be blessed by the Lord, but yet they were under bondage. And so Jesus shows up without giving them justice and wrath and instead gives them what? Mercy and grace. He was a suffering servant, not a conquering king. He showed up on the colt, the donkey, not the white warhorse, And so when the most valuable thing in all of existence, which is the king of the kingdom, showed up, they failed to recognize his infinite worth because they were so preoccupied with things of infinitely lesser value. They refused to let go of them. You might say they were the worst spiritual prices right contestants of all time. And so consequently, they too lost out badly in a big way. So Jesus' second parable, it's kind of making a similar point here. It's the pearl of great price, and it's where the kingdom, he says, is like a man who is out searching for the most finest of pearls that he can acquire, sells all of his stuff so that he can get it. Now, at the time when Jesus was living, pearls were a really big deal. I mean, pearls were in. If you were, if you were rich, if you were a part of the elite club, you had pearls. Okay, Pearls were very much desired. They were beautiful. They were worth tons and tons of value. And so during this time, people were fascinated with them. How valuable were they? One historian, he recorded that the Roman general, Vitilius, financed an entire military campaign by selling just one of his mother's pearl earrings. That's, a, that's worth a lot of money. So the point here Jesus is making is the kingdom of heaven has extreme worth. It is the most worth, valuable thing there is on the planet. And so what is he saying? He's saying if we are going to receive this kingdom, we have to recognize its worth. We have to. You have to recognize the worth worth of the kingdom in order to receive it. But here's the question again. Does everyone recognize the worth of the kingdom? Does everyone who goes to church on Sunday recognize the worth of the kingdom? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They don't. That's why Jesus told us as we saw a few weeks ago, the parable of the four soils. And what was his point about those soils? His point was three of the four, that's 75%. I'm bad at math, but I can do that one. That's three of the four are unregenerate soils who will one day be cast into hell because their hearts are not receptive of the kingdom seed that is, that is planted and sown out. And why not? Well, it's because their hearts are like pigs in the mud who love their mud. They refuse to give up their mud. 
They think mud is the best thing ever. And so even if that pig is in the mud and it accidentally comes along a pearl as it's stirring up in the mud and doing its piggy thing, is it going to do anything with the pearl? No, it's going to be like, get out of my way, pearl. I want my mud. What are you doing here? And that's the case with our hearts. We love mud instead of the ultimate riches, which is the kingdom of heaven. And that's silly because what has more value, mud or pearls? No question about it, pearls. And yet, some of you are valuing mud when you have the pearls of heaven laying before you. And all you have to do to get them is to be willing to give up your mud. Let go of the mud. You've got pearls before you. Mud's not that great. It's going to dry up anyways. And yet, here's the, here's the sad state of our existence, is apart from the grace of God, the human heart is incapable of giving up the mud. We long for the mud. We desire for it. And so even when the pearls are put before us, like they were with the nation of Israel, what did many of them do? They hardened their hearts like Pharaoh did. They said, nope, 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 nope. I don't want that. I want this. The human heart is completely unable to see the buried treasure. And in fact, we could go a step further. The human heart is completely unable to see the value of treasure, the value of pearls, even when it's before our very eyes. And so instead, we go along foolishly chasing after the things of this world when the things of eternal glory lay right before us, just moments away from us, just, just breaths away, heartbeats away. What kind of things am I talking about? What kind of things are mud that we get distracted with? Man, I'm talking about, I mean, there's so many illustrations here. Anything, literally. Jobs, career, hobbies, relationships, homes, cars, vacations, friends, families. Keep throwing things in there that are in the creation. All of those things, when they are out of their proper order, become mud that prevent us from treasuring the kingdom. I kind of wish we would have sang the song today, How Rich a Treasure We Possess, because that's exactly what we're talking about. How incredibly foolish to do so when we have before us eternal treasure that will never fade, that will never grow old. We grow old, so why treasure this body? This body is going to get planted in the ground and worms are going to do their thing to it. Why treasure that? Why treasure sandcastles that we are building in this life that are just moments away from the tide coming in and wiping it out? It's foolish. This is why Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. And yet so many, three of the four, 75% of hearts in his, in his first parable, Jesus tells us they utterly refuse to trade their rags for riches. They say, no, I want my rags. I want my mud. I don't want the riches of the king. And they refuse to do so because they fail to recognize that the things of this world pale in, they're infinitely worse. They pale in comparison to the value of the things of the world to come. And if they didn't think this way, if they did come to recognize that the world to come is so much greater than this world, there'd be no question about it. They would count the cost of trading in their mud, and they would look at it and they would say, wow, this isn't a question at all. Of course I'm going to trade my mud in for the eternal riches of heaven. Which brings us to our second point. To receive the kingdom's reward, we must recognize its worth, but secondly, we need to recognize its cost. There's no question about it. When it comes to receiving the kingdom, it's going to cost you. We all in agreement on that? It's going to cost you something. 
you remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 8 about the cost of following him? I mean, this isn't just a one-and-done passage. This is all throughout Scripture. There is a cost. Here's what he says. Now, Jesus saw the crowd around him, and he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's a hard saying. About Matthew 16, here's what he says there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Okay, wait a minute, though. What's Jesus, is this, what's he talking about here? Is this works-based salvation? Is that, is that how this works? He's got to go home and, you know, get rid of all my stuff, and live as a nomad? Is that what he said? No. His point is simply this. We must exchange our idols for the one and true God. We can't come to God with this I want, to keep every, I want to keep my old self and I want the new self. They don't go together. Grace saves us, but it is a grace that works. We are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. We saw that in James quite a long time ago. How does that work? By making us give up the foolish works we've been living for, not works of righteousness that no one will boast, Paul says. By making us realize how worthless the pig slop is that we've been living for. That absolutely comes with salvation. And so, yes, salvation is absolutely by grace. It is absolutely free. But as the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once rightly said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. It will. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, that means, don't, don't mistake in here, there's not two classes of Christians. There's not those who are saved and those who are disciples. You are a disciple. You are not saved. Period. Everyone who is a follower of Jesus is a disciple. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are one of his followers, that means that you readily accept that following him might cost you all of your pig mud that you've acquired. And of course it will. And here's the thing about it. When we come to regenerating faith, you know what happens? Our heart's response to this isn't, oh, seriously? How am I ever going to do that? Like, oh, man. We're just like, wow, of course. Of course, I want the treasures of the king as opposed to the worthless treasures of this world. Now, don't get me wrong. There's still a battle there. We still contend with our flesh, but our ultimate heart's desire is for the kingdom which is coming. As Paul says in Romans, he says, you know, he talks about this, this battle, this striving he has. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, the, you know, I do. Who will help me? Who will save this wretched man? What's the answer? He answers it right there. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the one who is powerful enough to change our affections, to no longer love mud and love the trophies and the crowns and the treasures of heaven. Bonhoeffer also famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Doesn't sound like your best life now, does it? Sounds like your best life to come is what that sounds like to me. And Bonhoeffer is absolutely right. And he found this out himself. 
he was executed for his faith. For when we come to Christ, our old selves die, and our new selves are then reborn, just as a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And if the caterpillar says, no, 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 I ain't going to that cocoon. I want, I want, I want the wings, I want all that, but I'm not doing that. Is the caterpillar ever going to become a butterfly? No. Not in a million years of that caterpillar trying to, you know, flap its little, I don't know how many arms, they, legs they have or whatever, but I think it's a lot. They're bugs, I don't mess with them. But you get the idea here? You see now why Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they are poor in spirit because they realize they can't become the butterfly on their own. They need regenerating grace in their life to change their affections, to no longer love mud, and to love the treasures of heaven. So do you see that when God saves a person, he is absolutely not okay with the status quo? He's making some renovations, and he's making some big ones. Yeah, it's going to take time. It doesn't happen the second you come to Christ, but make no mistake, he's not okay with the status quo. Yes, it is absolutely true. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, for Jesus stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. We sing that here at this church, and it is absolutely true. But make no mistake, that power that we sing about, full of pity, love, and power, that power is going to change you in a drastic way that you never could have done in a million years, no more so than a caterpillar could have changed itself into a butterfly. That power doesn't lay dormant. It launches into action, changing the heart and leading the heart to love the things of the world to come, not the things of this world. It begins to change the person to become a creature they never could have even imagined I mean, you think, a, you think a caterpillar, if it's never seen a butterfly before, if, you know, and somebody was telling them, hey, here's what you're going to turn into. You think you could imagine that? Flight? No. These, I mean, these things are like slow moving up thing. Takes them forever to climb a tree. Take a caterpillar, or take a butterfly forever to climb a tree? They don't climb it. They fly it. And the same is true of us. Christ is making us into creatures we could have never imagined. C.S. Lewis talks about this, and this is a super helpful quote. I want to read all of it. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently then, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little college, cottage. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. Salvation that Jesus offers isn't just fire insurance. It does save us from the fire, but that's not what Jesus is offering when he says, come and be my disciple. The salvation that Jesus offers is a wrecking ball that will come into your life and powerfully destroy all the silly mud huts that you've erected over the years. And when that's done, as Lewis points out, we will be a creature that is so wonderful and so beautiful that if today, right now, you saw your future glorified self, you would be tempted to drop to your knees and worship. That's the kind of creature God is turning us into. When we see him, what does scripture say? We will be like him. 
That's what's coming. And it's coming for all those whose hearts treasure the kingdom's worth and would gladly count the cost of discipleship and deem it worth paying 10 times over. Because the reality is it's actually no cost at all. Not really. Yes, at first, before we know any better, it seems like a hefty price, right? Like, I mean, I spent a long time putting these mud huts together. So that does seem kind of hard at first. Seems pricey. And you ask a pig to give up its mud for pearls, that's a tall order. But once the pig has been changed into a prince or princess whose father is the king of the universe, then everything changes, doesn't it? Of course it does. It absolutely does. And when everything changes, we find our hearts desiring this kingdom. We find our hearts being changed in a radical, life-changing way that we never could have imagined or done on our own in a million, million years. This leads us to our final point. To receive the kingdom's reward, we must recognize its worth, its cost, and then finally, its calling. In the last two parables here, Jesus gives us a parable of a dragnet that collects the fish of the sea and one of the householders, and one parable of the householder's treasure. So with this dragnet, Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that will be thrown out into the sea, and then it will pull everything in, and it's going to have fish of every kind, some good fish that you want to keep, some fat, bad fish where you're like, nope, not eating that. That's what he's talking about, some good and some bad. And this sounds an awful lot like Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, doesn't it? Very similar. And the point is quite simple. At the end of the age, the angels of the Lord will go out and he will separate the righteous from the evil. The good fish are kept and the bad fish are discarded. And they're not just thrown to the side, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, he says, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we know that what he's talking about here is he's talking about hell. And so who are the good fish and who are the bad fish? Well, in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus makes that quite clear to us. He makes this actually clear all throughout the Gospels, but here's what he says there. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, when it comes to Jesus, you can't have one one foot in the boat and one foot out of the boat, because when that boat takes off, what's going to happen? You need the splits, and you're going to fall right in the waters, which is going to happen. So if you want the salvation that Jesus offers, you have to get in the lifeboat or you are lost. That means all of you has to get in the lifeboat. Oh, I did it again. All of you has to get in the lifeboat, right? The entire person has to get in there, not just your arm, not just, you can't just step in there, you know, with one foot for a second and then pull it back. That's, that's, the, parable, that's the third parable, the soils, you know, it rises up for a bit. You see the thorns and thistles and then I don't like this, I'm jumping back out. You have to jump into the boat. If you want the salvation that Jesus offers, you have to get in or you are lost. And as we've seen so far throughout our study through the book of Matthew, Jesus keeps making this point over and over again. Remember back in Matthew 12, verse 49 and 50, here's what he says. Who are his mother, brothers, and sisters? Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that is my mother and sister and brothers. See, some of you here today, you're struggling with this. And you're struggling with this because when you came to Christ, I venture to say it's because you didn't come to him as a king, as, like you were coming before a king. You came to him as you were coming before a servant. 
Yeah, maybe that servant had a lot of power, but you didn't come to him as a king. You came to him as someone who was willing to make a trade. Instead of bowing your knee in repentance, you tried to bargain with God. You said, okay, I'll do this Christian thing. I'll go to church. I'll, I'll believe in God. I'll follow Jesus a bit. If, dot, 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 fill in the if. If you bless my life. If you make all my cows never break out of their pens. If, you know, fill in the thing. If you give me good health and let me die at a ripe old age in my sleep. But if you don't, God, then you and I are going to have a problem. And how many people do we know that have been in the church with us who have experienced trouble, maybe even trouble and hardship from that church they were in? And then what do they do in response? I'm done. This isn't what I signed up for, God. This was not a part of the deal. And if that's their mentality, how did they approach God? They didn't approach him as king. They approached him as if he was their servant. And is that how we should approach the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Of course not. Unless, of course, you still think you're the king. Then, of course, you'll approach it that way. But here's the thing. You're not the king. I'm not the king. None of us are. There's one king, and his name is King Jesus. And he demands total allegiance, not partial. He demands total loyalty, not divided loyalty. Not one foot in, one foot out. He demands all of you, not merely just a part of you. And as our creator king, it is his sovereign right to demand so. He's not out of line by demanding that. You were created for that. And what do you do if you make an object and it doesn't work how you intended? It's busted. It doesn't do its assigned purpose you made it for. What do you do? You throw it away. The same thing with an eternal God. And yet remarkably... Don't miss this. When we bow the knee and say, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, you realize what he does for us? He bends down, pulls us up by the hand, and says, now let me show you what I have in store for you. After placing a golden crown upon our heads and wrapping a pearl of great price around our necks, He looks at us with those loving, tender eyes and says, this is why I asked you to give up those mud pies. You could never hold these things I'm I'm trying to give you when you had all this junk of this world in your hands. I asked you to give that up, not because I wanted to harm you, not because I wanted to abuse you, but because I wanted to move you from your spiritually diseased rags into the heavenly robes and riches that will never fade. I wanted you to become kings and queens in my Father's kingdom. In verse 51, we come to our last parable in Matthew chapter 13. It's the parable of the new and the old treasures. And in this parable, Jesus compares his disciples to the master of a house who brings out of his treasure both new and old. What's this treasure? The glorious truths of the kingdom of heaven. Those are revealed in the Old Testament, in the past. And there's new treasures that Jesus... And revelations that Jesus was unpacking for them that lay dormant, hidden under the ground, that he dug up and gave to his disciples. And what glorious truths these are. What beautiful truths. Truths that our world desperately needs to hear. Truths that if they don't hear and respond to properly by faith will result in God's divine dragnet one day capturing them, resulting in them being discarded into the fires of an eternal hell. So I ask you this morning the same question 
that Jesus asked his disciples in verse 51. Do you understand these things? Do you understand them? Or are you like the crowds who heard these parables and all they did was sovereignly harden their hearts because that was their heart's desire? They desired to have their hearts hardened, just as Pharaoh did. Yes, God sovereignly hardens people's hearts, but it's never against what they want. Look what happened with Pharaoh. I mean, it goes back and forth. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's never in opposition. It's always together. And so I ask you, do you understand these things? Do you see the incredible worth of the kingdom? Do you see its incredible cost? you see the immense importance of our kingdom calling? If not, then I urge you to gaze upon the most valuable pearl of great price that there is, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is the ultimate pearl of great price, who is the one whom our hearts were created for to desire. That's what they long for. And in whom alone can we find satisfaction and true everlasting joy. You're not going to find it in mud huts. You're not going to find it in the slop of this world. You're only going to find it in Christ. That's it. And why can he be our joy? Because out of his great love for us, he valued us, though we were invaluable. He saw worth in us, though we were worthless. And he paid the greatest of costs when it was a cost that we could never pay. And he did so because he obeyed his father's call. He followed and obeyed and adhered to his Father's calling. And that is why we can now have value to him and value him. That is why we can now value him. That is why we can can consider the cost of discipleship to be nothing at all compared to what he's offering us in exchange. And then we can live out our calling faithfully in obedience as an act of worship and gratitude. The destruction of the world is coming. So very soon, so very soon, the great divine dragnet is hoisted together. It's ready. It lays there ready to go out by the angels and pull all the fish of this world in and separate them, the righteous for eternal glory and the unrighteous for eternal damnation. The question is, are you ready for it? Are you living for it? Because here's the thing, and we're not going to dive into this today, but even as the redeemed, we can store up treasures of eternal value that God will reward to us as his redeemed children who will have these for all eternity. He offers that to us. And we don't even have a glimpse of what that actually is, but we know it's going to be marvelous. We know it's going to be wonderful. And so even for God's children, we have a decision to make. Are you going to live for that kingdom as hard as you can, jettisoning the things of this world and living for it? Are you ready for the kingdom that's coming, the world to come? Do you understand these things? I think of the parable of the prodigal son, which we're going to get to so very soon. What a picture of what we're talking about today. The son who has everything from the father. He goes off into the world lives and enjoys the things of this world, and all it does is it ends up leaving him in a miserable, broken state. And then what does he do? He's eating pig slop. He's in the mud, literally, with the pigs. What a perfect illustration of what we all are like. And then, by the grace of God, God through faith, what do our hearts do? We recognize we have a Father who loves us. If we but would return home, 
leave the pig slot behind and go home and receive the eternal rewards, the riches, the robe that he wraps around us and feast and dine with him for all of eternity. Do you understand these things? I trust by God's grace that you do. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, we ask that by the grace and power of God that we may value the worth of Christ, that we may count the cost and gladly see that it's no cost at all. We pray, Lord, that out of our overwhelming joy then, that we may faithfully fulfill our great kingdom calling to go into the world as fishers of men, pointing people to the salvation which comes only through the one lifeboat, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who suffered and died upon the cross for our sins so that the unrighteous might become righteous, so that the unworthy might become worthy. So, Father, help us never to lose sight of that worth as your children. Help us to not fall back into making mud pies and mud castles and thinking that those, are, have, that those have any value whatsoever. So we ask, Lord, that by your grace that we would see that the cost of discipleship is worth paying, for it is nothing at all, for Jesus paid it all. So then we ask, Lord, that we would also fulfill our calling as a church and as individuals who make up this church by living on mission, by recognizing this life is a vapor. It's so short. It's here for a moment. It's the introduction to eternity. And what we do now determines how the rest of that book is going to go. So we ask that by your grace, through faith in the gospel, that we would store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break in and steal. Father, I pray for the one here today who doesn't know whether or not they're actually a child of God. Father, I just pray that you would, by your grace, help them come to the certainty of truth. These things are written that we may know that we have eternal life. Not guess, not hope, not venture to say that we think we do, but to know we have eternal life. And we know that knowing comes not by our works and our abilities to produce righteousness in us, but we know that it comes from seeing your omnipotent hand, which not only saved us and justified us before you, but is continuing to save us as it sanctifies us, changing us in ways that we never could have imagined, knocking down walls, putting up towers that we could never build. So we ask that you would continue to work in this church in a mighty way, that you would sanctify us in your truth, for you are truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing songs? We're going to be singing two songs this morning. The first one is Give Me Jesus, which is really what we're talking about today. We want Christ, not the things of this world.